Well, this morning we return one last time to the topic of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and we're going to be looking at some qualifications and promises that are made here in the text. When I was growing up in my uh, earlier years, right before kindergarten and shortly after, uh, like every little kid, I would get sick. And uh, my mom and dad had a business, and so um, oftentimes when my mom couldn't be there for me, she would um, ask this faithful neighbor, a close friend of hers who lived two doors away, if uh, she, this neighbor could watch me, usually for a couple hours while she got done, whatever she had to get done for the business. And what was uh, interesting is, is I really like this lady because uh, she was from the South and she had this incredible Southern accent. And every time she saw me, she'd go, oh, Jackie, honey. <laughs> I mean, that was it. And then she'd you know, pinch my cheeks and make jokes and say, how would you like to make me some possum pie or something like that? So my mom would, uh, she would take me to, to that neighbor lady and drop me off. And, and she was concerned, since I was the baby of the family, that I was well taken care of. And, and since I was the most loved child, I mean, she's never admitted this, but <laughs> my seven brothers and sisters know it's true. She needed somebody faithful to take care of me. And this woman would just, I mean, she just oozed with love and compassion and would make me big chocolate and vanilla shakes. And I loved getting sick. I mean, I just thought, oh boy, if I could only get sick on just the right day, I might be able to go to this lady's house. Well, just as my mother needed a faithful, caring servant to take care of me when I was little... So the church needs faithful, caring servants to take care of those who are need in the church. And God has a specific group of people, a specific office appointed to do such that, and that is the office of deacons. They are God's faithful, qualified servants called to help meet needs of people within the body. Now, we have learned that the church has two offices, one being the office of deacon, that uh, Paul addresses that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then he addresses the office of deacon. Now, the office of elder is uh, a special office, and it is directed at those who are to teach the sheep and equip the sheep and train the sheep and deal with erring sheep. It, it is uh, the spiritual overseers of the church. They are the highest office, those who manage the church and rule the church and make sure the church is fed and make sure it is protected from false doctrine and from false teachers. That is the primary task of an elder, along with a constant devotion to praying for the church. Deacons, on the other hand, are those who serve under the oversight of the elders so they can free the elders up to do what the elders need to do. Because there's always a lot of physical needs in the church. I mean, there's tasks that we all enjoy that just happen. And a lot of times it is a thankless job, an unnoticed job, a behind-the-scenes ministry, and that is what deacons a lot of times do. And we learned that deacons are not necessarily um, elders who didn't make the grade. They aren't uh, less qualified, less spiritual. They have just the same spiritual qualifications, except they are not required to teach, be able to teach, uh, to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So... Other than that, though, they are supposed to be well-trained, godly individuals. And we began to look at the qualifications of deacons. We found that they are to be men of dignity. The word dignity would include one's outward appearance that reflects his inner attitudes and behaviors. A, um, a person who, just by their appearance and behavior, they kind of endure respect. You, you just... If you just look at them and watch them and just say, you know, I can respect somebody like that. We learned a deacon is not to be double-tongued. He is to be honest and truthful in his speech. He's not to be like a snake and have a forked tongue and say this to one person and that to another. 
He is not to be given over to much wine or any controlling substance that would impair his judgment. He is not to be fond of sordid gain, which means that all the, thing, all the money and all the possessions he has are to be earned by hard, honest labor. They aren't to be swindled or connived or extorted. And he must be holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And the mystery of faith, we learned, were those teachings of the New Testament, the teachings of Christ and the gospel and all those things we learn in the Bible that we need to be uh, doing as Christians. Of course, it would include um, also just the faith, everything in the Bible. But the mystery of faith are kind of directed at those truths in the New Testament which make Christianity Christianity. And he is to do it with a clear conscience, which means not only is he to know those truths, he is to live those truths. Because you can't hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience if you aren't submitting to those truths. The sixth quality we encountered in the text before us is that he must be tested and found to be above reproach. You don't just take somebody because he's a swell-looking guy or because you like him. You test him. You test him thoroughly. And if, after being tested, he is above reproach in those ministry tasks, then he might be considered to be a deacon. Then the text switches in verse 11 to women, women who serve The text says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And we concluded that these women are those who serve alongside or assist the deacons. They are godly women. They are not called deacons in the text. But obviously, they're serving in the very context of deacons. And so we know that they are entrusted with very important areas of ministry. Areas appropriate for women. And there's just some ministries that women can do or should do that men shouldn't do. Or maybe ministries that women can do better than men. Ministries to other women, so to speak. Ministries to just help people in areas that women just know things better than men. And so those ministries are to be entrusted, and other ministries likewise, to faithful women. You don't just take just any run-of-the-mill woman, but... Qualified women, those who are dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. We learned that these four qualities, dignified is the same one that is required of deacons in verse 8. An appearance, a behavior that reflects an inner attitude that commands respect. Secondly, they are not to be malicious gossips, diabolos, devils in their speech, accusers, slanderers, uh, those who uh, maybe take confidential information, spread it around, and you know, use it as little dainty morsels to promote conversation. They are to be temperate, which means that they are to um, be like elders in this area, uh, sound, sober-minded, um, able to respond correctly in uh, different situations. And the fourth and final qualification is they must be faithful in all things, which means their life is to be characterized by faithfulness. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but they are to be faithful in their qualifications. When you look at them, you would say, you know, this is a faithful person. Now, at the end of verse 11 is where we just kind of chopped off the link sausage. So it's this morning, we're going to get the rest of the sausage. And uh, we'll see um, basically three promises in verse 12, followed, or three qualifications in verse 12, followed by two promises in verse 13. Verse 12 reads this, Deacons must be the husbands of one wife, good managers of their children, and their own household. This is the seventh qualification in verse 12, Deacons must be the husband of of one wife. This is the same qualification we have seen for elders. It might be translated a one woman man or a man devoted to only one woman or their wife. And since there is so much confusion about what it means to be a Christian husband today, even in the church, I want to spend a little time on this. I want to look at some of the foundational things that cause husbands not to be faithful and what causes them to be faithful. And basically, if you look at this husband of one wife, you could categorize it in two different ways. You could say that the husband who is the one woman man is characterized by what he doesn't do and by what he does do. And so... What a man must not be towards his wife is unfaithful. This means he must not engage in immorality of any kind, either in thought or in deed. 
He can't be a man who is given over to his sexual passions outside of marriage. And he is not to be immoral. This word immoral means uh, any sort of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. The word we get pornography for him is the Greek word porneia. He is not to be that kind of person. And this would include adultery and fornication and looking at pornography and reading things or watching things that would be inappropriate. Conjuring up sexual fantasies to engage in sexual thoughts or actions. Anything contrary to the scriptures is to be unfaithful to God and unfaithful to your wife. And so the deacon is not to be that kind of man, just like every husband is not to be that kind of man. Fifty years ago in our country... Pornography was a smaller issue. It was far less common. But today, it is mainstream. Fifty years ago, if you were to take the magazines that appear at the end cap of the average grocery store line, if you were to take those back into a store 50 years ago, people would have an outcry at the pornography that's being displayed, but now it's just fashion. It's just common. We have been boiled in the immorality of our culture, and we don't even know it. And this immorality is affecting people, when before those who looked at that sort of things and engaged in that kind of activity were just deviant, base, immoral perverts. And now you're just, you're just normal. You're you're perverted if you're moral. Satan has totally switched the tables. So what is common front cover fare on magazines and in TV shows and on billboards now, just 50 years ago, would have been an atrocity that the entire culture would have stood up against. Our country is experiencing the judgment of God. Because it has rejected the word of God. Now, a lot of people think to themselves, you know, our, come on, Jack. I mean, what's this judgment of God business? Well, if you were to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, you would discover if you just read that and compared it to our society, the world in which we live in, that it is an exact commentary of what we are experiencing today in America. Paul says that the first thing to happen is that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Even though that which is known about God is evident in them, even though they have God's law written on their heart, even though they have this conscience alternately offending or else accusing them, even though that it can be seen through creation what has been made that God exists, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They become futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts are darkened. And this leads them to further sin. They then exchange the glory of God for idols. Idols defined as animals, things created, possessions. Does that sound like our culture? Absolutely. People worship their cars and houses and things. This, in turn, brings God's judgment. Not a judgment that we would expect, but a judgment of letting go of them of giving them over. Three times in the text, he says he gives them over. And you know, it's interesting what he gives them over to. The first thing he mentions in the text is he gives them over to immorality and sexual perversion. And we saw this in the 1960s as there was the, quote, sexual revolution, where there was free sex and no accountability and irresponsibility. And that began to affect our country That was the first wave of God's judgment. And this leads men, in order to justify their carnality and and to justify their immoral acts, it causes them to want to set God's truth away even further. And so they do what is called the great exchange again, and they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They begin to say that bad is good and good is bad, and this is is what we see in society, isn't it? Premarital sex is good. And if you abstain and if you remain a virgin, there's something wrong with you. I mean, what's wrong with you? If you do drugs and you get drunk, you're cool. But if you don't, you're a loser. 
And so the whole world has changed around. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then the text says it gives them over to things like lesbianism and homosexualism, baser forms of sexual perversion still. That's exactly what we're seeing today. This is the judgment of God. And then Paul ends in verses 19 through 32 with this commentary on a society that has been judged by God, that has been thrice given over by God, and this is what he says. Now, as I read this, you just ask yourself, is this what we're seeing today? Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is our world. And all of these things have earned countries God's judgment. And all of these things are things that are snares to every man. Every man who is trying to lead his family is in a culture that is saturated with wickedness. You know, on our currency and on our coins, it just amazes me that it says, in God we trust. It says, it should say, Ichabod. The glory has departed. We don't trust God. That's a mockery. And while the culture is rapidly declining, the church seems to just follow the culture downgrade. Oh, we're always two steps behind, but instead of just looking at God's word and saying, this is what God's word says and this is where we're going to be, then we want to say, oh no, you can't be loving and just maintain God's standards. So you just, you know, compromise here and compromise here. And now we have lesbian pastors and homosexual pastors and pastors who have divorces and pastors who, you know, committed adultery. There's just no standard in most churches. And all of this is corrupting marriage. All of this is plunging many husbands into ruin and destruction. Immorality and immoral temptations are legion. TV, magazines, just everywhere you go, it's just a constant battle. And many husbands are losing that battle. And one of the great areas is the whole internet you have a computer you have internet connection that internet is a conduit to the world system run by the god of this world and if you aren't very discerning you can use that tool to pump pornographic sewage into the privacy of your own home and it's becoming increasingly common for those of you who don't know about computers, there's this little little thing you can click on. It's called the history, and it tells you what sites that you've searched in previous sessions on the Internet. And it's becoming more and more common for housewives to say, you know, I'm going to look in the history and find that site I was looking at, and all of a sudden to discover that their husbands have been engaging in pornography in their own home. And then they come to me, and they say, what should I do? This is epidemic, and it is a problem. Because pornography ruins men, it ruins marriages, it ruins families, and it ruins countries. And that is why God says a man needs to be devoted to his one wife and his one wife only. Those who engage in those kind of activities, the scriptures say multiple, multiple times are characteristic of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we need to repent of them. The church needs to be holy and blameless that we are not even to let the world's deeds even be named among us as is not proper for the saints. And so a deacon, one who is in charge of ministering the saints and elders, are to be models of moral purity and devotion to their one wife, not going outside the marriage to fulfill their fantasies. Secondly, being a one-woman man is loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Not only is it 
to abstain from those things that would cause you to be unfaithful to your wife and God is to be diligently pursuing those things which would cause you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. But many husbands don't understand what that is. You see, we live in a world where, where, where leadership is prized. But most of all the leadership we see, whether in the workplace or on TV, in the media, whatever, is ungodly leadership. It is not biblical leadership. And the problem is, as many husbands look at the CEO, you know, the guy in charge, the manager, and they think, oh, that's how I'm to be in my marriage. We are so bombarded with the world and its methods of leadership that we never stop and ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? And what kind of leadership does God call us to? You see, being head, being leader in your home, in a biblical sense, is a position of responsibility, not of lording it over your wife and your children. And many husbands are basically practicing what Jesus denounced in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 and 26, when he described the godless Gentile rulers as those who lord it over and who have authority and use that authority to lord it over. And he says, but it is not this way with you. But the one who wishes to be great among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. That is Jesus' mode of leadership. You be the servant, you take the low position, that is being a biblical leader. Jesus said that being his disciple is to practice servant leadership, not lordship leadership like is common in the world. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Mark 10.45 says, He did not come to be served, but what? To serve and give His life a ransom for many. That is how Jesus showed us how to behead. Alexander Strau in his book, The New Testament Deacon, said this, quote, In God's design, men are to protect, lead, and provide for women but never in a superior, dominating, selfish, or belittling way. Men are to lead in a responsible, sacrificial, and loving way like Christ does the church, end quote. And this kind of leadership or headship is foreign to a lot of people, even Christians. They just, they just, the concept is, it just doesn't come through. They're so used to commander, dictator, king, um, drill sergeant, that when they, you give them your to be the head, they just assume that position. All right, this is what we're doing. I need to do this, do that. And they're calling orders. And they don't think to themselves, oh, maybe I need to be serving my wife. And what really is convicting is to just do a quick little survey of the three major texts in the New Testament that address marriage and are addressed to husbands. And that's where you find out specifically what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church, what it means to be ahead, where your authority is. And this is where it is. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 29, addresses husbands. The first thing we find out where a husband's authority is, he has authority to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Secondly, in verse 25, he is to give his, himself up for his wife as Christ did for the church. That is, sacrifice his own time, energy, money, resources for his wife as Christ lived the church. Verse 26, the third thing, he is to sanctify her, which means helping her grow in godliness. The fourth thing, he is to help cleanse her, which means that he is to encourage her and help her to grow by being constantly exposed to the word of God. Fifth, verse 27 says, he is to have as his goal to present his wife in all her glory, not his glory. 6, verse 27 says, he is to try to present her without flaw, and also, 7, to present her holy, and also, verse 27, to present her blameless. In other words, he is to do everything he can to encourage his wife to grow, to give her times to study, to give her times to go to Bible study, give her time to go to church, give her time for quiet times, to come in there to encourage her, to give her resources, to talk with her about the scriptures to encourage her in every way he can, to make her the godliest woman he can. Then verse 29 says, the tenth thing, he is to nourish her as a mother does a child. Now think about this. Do you ever think of commanders 
sergeants, kings as nourishing? Hardly. It's a term used as a mother. Gently cares. You cannot be harsh with your wife and nourish her at the same time. Verse 29 also says, the 11th thing, he is to cherish her as a priceless treasure. Cherishing is when you love something so much and understand its incredible value that you are very kind and patient and gentle with it. And 12th, verse 29 says, he is to love her in all the ways he loves himself as his own body. And you know, when you start looking at things like that, you begin to realize, how do we love our body? Well, you know, you take care of your body, don't you? I mean, you don't slam your hand in the car door, do you? I mean, you know, you wash your body and scrub the teeth in your body and you feed your body and comb the hair in your body and you're watching out for your body all the time and put sunscreen on and wear the right clothes so you don't get too cold or too hot or whatever. You're constantly taking care of your body and that is the exact picture. Constantly take care of your wife. That is your authority. And that is all your authority is. None of this, you know, I'm king here. You do what I say, woman. I'm amazed at how many people come in and they they are clueless about this. They've never actually looked at the Bible and said, what does God say? Colossians 3.19 gives us two other things that help us understand what it means to be the head. It says husbands are to love their wives. And of course, when it says that, husbands are to love their wives, what is love? It is the agape word, the word that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. And what does it say? You know, love is patient. Love is kind. You know, it's not boastful. It is not arrogant. does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not seek its own. On and on. That's what love is. And husbands are commanded to love their wives. And every one of those things that defines agape love is all directed about what you do for someone else, not what they do for you. And some of you are thinking, I wish I would have went on the men's retreat. <laughs> the second thing in Colossians 3.19 is they are not to be embittered against their wives. So often you can have this negative, and I see this happening. When, when the husband fails to love his wife, then the wife often fails to love her husband. And then pretty soon in a marriage relationship, you begin to focus on all the things your spouse isn't doing. And a husband can become embittered against his wife. You know, that woman of mine, she burnt my toast. She failed to iron my shirt. She, she didn't, you know, put enough salt in my oatmeal. And she didn't, uh, you know, mow the lawn. <laughs> and everything you're thinking is about what your wife didn't do for you. People, that's not being a biblical leader. It should be what you are doing for your wife. And so it says, do not be bittered against your wife. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we have three more things that help us understand what it means to be head, leader, in charge of your family. It means to live with your wives in an understanding way. That means to be a student of your wife and her needs. It doesn't mean give your wife what you think she needs. It means give your wife what she thinks she needs. And a lot of people go, well, I don't know how to do that. Ask her. Ask her. <laughs> it's amazing how many husbands never get around to doing that. How can I meet your needs? The second quality is live with your wives as with a weaker vessel. What that means is, is you would never do anything that would cause your wife to suffer physically or emotionally. You would try not to put her in any circumstance that would physically harm her or emotionally harm her. You would keep her protected. And third, you are to grant your wife honor like you would a queen. And man, if we are not loving our wives as Christ loved the church, but if we are treating them like our servants, we are not doing these things. This, those three texts define what it means to be head in your family. That is it. That is what it means. You sacrifice for your wife and you love your wife and you give yourself up for your wife and you worry about what God wants you to be and not what you wish she was. And she'll follow. God has made her to follow. 
But don't you become an expert on what she's not doing and then have logs in your own eyes, beams, because you aren't doing what God has called you to do. Husbands who lord it over their wives try to justify from uh, 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6 that uh, you know they need to be in charge and their wives need to obey them. I mean, I even have a book in my office. I think I've got it hidden and I've got written on the front cover, Bad Doctrine. Um, I have some books in my, and I'm always afraid somebody's going to show up into my uh, office and, you know, pluck some book off the shelf and discover, you know, this is sounds, this is a Catholic book or something. Um, You know, this is not what we believe. And so I always write in the front cover, Bad Doctrine in Permanent Ink. And this one book is about how wives need to obey and it's all focused on this text. This is what the text says. For, this, for in this way, the former, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now they like to say, see, look at right there. Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, woman. So you better do that to me. Well, first, this text is not even addressed to husbands, but to wives. It's not even speaking to husbands, but to wives. And it certainly is not telling husbands they can command their wife to obey. Secondly, the emphasis of 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6 is on Sarah's submission to Abraham. Not on Abraham's rights to command Sarah. Because of her hope in God, she submitted to his cockamamie plan to lie, to deceive, to be like Satan. Abraham, in this text, is not the focus. He was sinning when he asked his wife to lie. He was not trusting God. Abraham did what was wrong. And the only way you can take this text and say, oh, yeah, well, this is an example here, is to model yourself after Abraham, who is blatantly sinning in this context. No. Any husband who lords it over his wife by commanding and ordering and being insensitive and not listening to her and not living with her understanding way is sinning and needs to repent. And Abraham definitely is not the the hero in this passage. Sarah is, who, even though her husband asked her to do this sinful thing twice, she said, okay, Lord. Because remember what he said. Don't tell him I'm your hubby. Okay. Yes, Lord. Lisa does that sometime to me when I start barking. Honey, we need to do this. We need to do this. She goes, Liz, my Lord. And it's like, oh. It reminds me of what I'm supposed to be doing. So being a one-woman man means submitting to God, being the kind of husband that loves your wife as Christ loved the church as defined, not by culture, not by business, not by the military, but by the pages of Scripture which address husbands specifically like Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, and Colossians 3. Now, the eighth qualification and ninth qualifications are listed here at the end of verse 12. They are to be good managers of their children and their own households. We saw this also with elders. The word manager means to rule over, preside over, manage, or be guardian over. And the adjective that describes that is good. They aren't just to be managers. We're all managers. Some of us are lousy managers. Others are good ones. The word good actually means noble or excellent. So everybody who is qualified to be a deacon, every man who is qualified to be a deacon is an excellent lover of his wife, an excellent trainer of his children, and an excellent manager of his household. And if he is not, he is not qualified to be a deacon. As Paul said in verse 5 when he talked about the elders having this quality, he said, listen... If a guy can't manage his own household, how in the world is he going to be able to do that with the church of God? And the implied answer is he can't. He's got to have his act together in that area. 
And this area of parenting is a huge concern in our society. You know, people know how to have babies today. They just don't know how to raise them. Even those in the church. And we're really confused about what this whole thing, idea of parenting. We're so caught up in the world and the things of the world that a lot of times the parenting is just like a low priority. It should be a really, really, really high priority because it is with God. And there are some universal truths about parenting that we all need to know. First is, no two children are the same. They're all their own individual little sin-cursed pea brains. They're, they're all selfish by nature. They, they're sinners. They're depraved. That is a universal truth about all children that you can just, when they come out of the shoot, you're just, that's how they are. That is the one thing that is constant. And because of that, they are all self-centered and undisciplined and need to be taught God's word. And each child has a different you know, temperament. Some are passive and some are more aggressive and some are a little calmer and some are a little more hyper than others. But no matter what their personality is, they're all sinners, all depraved, and they all need lots of parenting. Every diligent parent knows how much work it is to try and train your children. It, it goes by so fast that even if you're a diligent parent, it's almost, you almost become desperate you know, as they get older because you just can't seem to just pump into them enough. There's like not enough time to pump into them enough truth before all of a sudden they're gone. And, you know, what really is interesting is the people who don't have well-behaved children will often come up to you and go, Oh, you're so lucky. Your kids are good. Luck has nothing to do with it. We beat them that way. You know, we, we constantly instruct them to get that way. They didn't, they aren't born that way. It's not like, you know, oh, you, you chanced out. Your, your, your child doesn't have a sin nature. They all have sin natures. And beloved, well-behaved children are not a matter of luck. They are a product of diligent parenting, hard labor. And one of the big problems is in parenting is that parents have no clue about the goal of parenting. What is the goal of parenting? You see, if you're a parent and you don't know what the goal is, how are you going to achieve that goal? I mean, right now, if we all had a race and said, okay, run for the finish line. Well, where is it? Go! Well, you might be running in the wrong direction if you don't know where the finish line is. And so what is it that God wants you to achieve? What is the goal of parenting? And I'm going to give you three primary goals that pretty much cover everything. Everything that is important to raising your children. And again, this isn't a how-to. This is the goal. First, you want to evangelize your children. You want them to come to salvation. So, what do you do? You systematically teach them the scriptures. You teach them the gospel. You teach them about Christ. You teach them about sin. You teach them why Jesus died on the cross. I mean, you've got to do it all the time. You don't just teach them a whole bunch of Bible stories. The Bible stories are all fine, but what you want to teach them is the God of the Bible stories. You want to teach them the principles latent in the, the scriptures so that they know they are a sinner, they are in need of salvation, and if they don't come to salvation, there's judgment coming. And what you don't do is this. You don't say, you know, how would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? Okay. Okay. Or let's pray the sinner's prayer. Okay. And so you pray with them. Say, now you're saved. Do not do that to your children. That is to give them a false hope. So many people, I kid you not, in this church have come to me and said, you know, my parents always told me I was a Christian. I realized I, I wasn't saved. Because the parent cannot save the child. They can only give the child the gospel and God has to save them. And you tell your children this. Listen, this is who Jesus is. This is what, what he did. This is who you are and this is what you must do. And you know if you are saved as you see God working in your life and changing you from one glory to the next. That is your assurance. 
It is not those who profess to know Christ who have assurance, but those who live like Christ have assurance. And just read 1 John sometime. There's like 19 little indicators of how we know we have eternal life. There's those who say one thing and then those who do, who have the assurance. And we need to make sure that we don't just get our kids to satisfy our own conscience because, you know, no one wants their kids to perish. But we aren't doing our kids a favor if we just get them to pray a prayer and put a little pressure on them and then they say, oh, yeah, well, that's Jesus. My, how good you're saved and no one can ever snatch you out of God's hand. Don't let everybody tell you anything different. And then they go through their whole life. They don't have a passion for God's word. They, they don't like church. And, and we're all frustrated because we know they're saved. No, we don't. You only know someone saved as you see God transforming their life. That's what the scriptures teach. So the first goal is to evangelize your child. To do everything you can to try and teach them about all the aspects of salvation. Secondly, you are to teach them sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. For instance, you need to be able to teach your kids what repentance is. You need to teach your kids what predestination is. Some of you are thinking, I just took your class and I still don't know what it is. Um, You need to find ways to communicate to your children the doctrines of the Christian faith. So what is sanctification? What are all these shun words anyways? What do those mean? What is propitiation? What is providence? What are those things? How do you become sanctified? When do you become sanctified? What What are the means by which you become sanctified? I mean, how does all that work? When does God give you illumination? What is illumination? All of those doctrines you need to teach your kids in a very simple and understandable way, which means you first need to know them and know them well enough to be able to teach them those things, right? And if you don't know them, you can't teach them to your children. But that's what it means to be a parent. Do you remember what Deuteronomy 6 says? Oh, yeah. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk by the way, when you go in, when you go out, constantly teach them my word. Not just doing a little devotion where dad says, sit still, I'm going to teach you the Bible. And then, you know, you sit down and read a couple of verses at them and say, obey this and I'll go to bed. That's not what we're talking about. It's trying to use every life situation, every sort of um, opportunity. You know, when you're out there digging in the dirt, when you're out there walking around, when you're in the mall. And, you know, we just try and constantly tell our kids, you know, why do you think that person's that way? And and why do you think people write graffiti on the walls right there? And what would make them do such a thing? And, and, uh, you know, would a Christian be able to do that? And why not? And what does the Bible say about this? And you're just constantly bringing God's word in the life of your child. Why? Because you want to have them have a worldview of which who is the center? God. And that brings us to the third and final goal of parenting. And that is, your goal is to make your children independent of you and dependent upon God. Independent of you and dependent upon God. In other words, by the time they leave home when they're 18, if you're lucky, or shortly thereafter, you know, some people are going, I'm still waiting. He's he's 48 and he hasn't left yet. Um, When they leave home, you want to be able to have a child who goes out, who is now an adult, goes out into the world and sees things through God's eyes. He sees the world through the scriptures and how God sees the world. This is a person who has been trained in the gospel, who knows Christ, who knows the biblical answers to the common questions and sins of the world, who knows how to be disciplined in godliness, who already has a pattern of serving in the church, of giving in the church, of being involved in ministry, who knows how to study their Bible, who knows how to find answers in the scriptures. I mean, you know, if you wanted to go home and, and, you know, make a triple-decker chocolate cake, you don't just say, well, I'll just throw some greetings in and just try it. But that's a lot, how a lot of people use their life. You know, I've got to do this thing. I think I'll just try this and see if it works. No, you teach your children, this is how you find things in the Bible. This is how you study the Bible. 
This is how you look at the scriptures and this is how you run your life. When you need an answer, you go to the word of God first. Not to people. You go here first and you find out what the scriptures say. You need to teach your child how to do that. So when they go in the world, they're living for God and the glory of God. And God is the focus and purpose of their life. That is being a successful parent. Not getting them a big college education so they can make a lot of money. Now that's fine. But that just pales in comparison to making sure they know Christ, know his word, and are able to live in a society that is wicked that they can share their faith with people they run into. Those are important things. So, the three goals of parenting, you evangelize them. Secondly, teach them sound doctrine. Third, you make them independent of you and dependent upon God. You know, one of the things that amazes me is some of the parents who have these children, man, they you know, maybe have dumped a lot of time and energy into them, and then the older they get, the more they hover over them. Uh, when, when the child wants to make a decision, it's like, well, wait a second... You know, they're, they're, they're hovering. They're, they're overly protective. And pretty soon, they aren't letting their child be independent. They are, as the child grows older, being more and more possessive of that child's decision-making. That is to exasperate your child. If, you, if your child cannot make wise decisions by the time they're ready to leave home, then you probably haven't done something right. You need to give them up to God. I mean, you know, I wasn't a bow hunter, and I want you to know that my goal was to let those arrows fly. I hated keeping them in my quiver. I looked for the opportunity to launch them, and that's how it should be with your children. They come, say, hey, I'm thinking of going to college. Oh, good. They're off they go. And if you trained them right, they'll fly straight in the way that God has called them. Then we come to verse 13. Paul knows that when you're a servant, that is kind of a position that's overlooked, that people oftentimes just don't acknowledge you. And he knows that servants in society are abused and despised and underpaid and overworked and Those who are lauded by the world are the health, wealth, fame, limo drivers. And those are the kind of people that um, get all the attention in the world, but not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, God says, the greatest will be the servant of all. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who loved to be seen as leaders said this in Matthew 23, 10 through 12. Do not be called leaders For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In Mark 9.35, when he was speaking to the disciples who, you know, were arguing about who would be the greatest, he said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. That is greatness. And that is what deacons do. They're servants of all. And Paul wants them to know, listen, as deacons, you are not some sort of inferior type of ministry here. This is not some sort of inferior position, a low-grade position. And so he says this in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The phrase high standing literally means an elevated step or platform. It's like the, uh, the Olympics, you know, when the, the guys win the race and they let them get up on the platform and they're elevated and all the crowd is cheering at them and they get the medal. That's what he's saying here. He says, those who are faithful deacons are a step above the rest, not below them. And the second promise Paul gives is that they will receive this great confidence. As they start serving God, as they start learning what Jesus taught, that it is more blessed to what? Give than receive. When they begin to experience that in their life, and people begin to appreciate them because they are faithful, because they are loving their wives, loving their children, managing their households, and serving the saints... People will respect them, and that respect will give them a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And though the world may see them as mere servants in God's eyes and God's economy, they are a step above the rest. 
and show signs of greatness because greatness is achieved through serving, not being served. In closing, I just want to read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 40, and read this section about, and this is the context of the sheep and the goats' judgment. And as I read this, I want you to notice the people that God honors. And the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you invested me, visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, To one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have called the church to appoint deacons. Deacons and faithful women to serve the saints. And Father, I just thank you for those faithful servants at Calvary Bible Church, those who you have raised up and gifted to serve you here. And Father, help all of us to be the kind of servants that God honors, those whom he sees not as lowly but great, because they were lowly, because they did serve. Father, help us to remember that as we serve others, others in the church, when we do that, we do it to you. Father, raise up godly men and women to fulfill the ministry tasks here so that you might receive all the glory and honor and praise so that elders could be freed up to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and so this body can be what you have called it to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.